I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And today we're here to answer the biggest question in heavy metal. You know, really, it's one of life's great questions. It's up there with why are we here and are we alone in the universe? Today, (laughs) we're going to tackle the age-old question, Metallica or Megadeth? Yes, although I'm sure there's somebody out there who's mad that we're not also talking about Slayer and Anthrax, you know? (laughs) Very true. All due respect to the big four. Uh, But we're focusing on Metallica and Megadeth because these bands are linked by one Dave Mustaine, who used to be in Metallica and then was kicked out before they put out their first record, Kill Em All, in 1983. After that, he formed Megadeth with the goal of dethroning Metallica from the top of the thrash metal heap. Uh, He's like Robert De Niro in Cape Fear, (laughs) and uh, Metallica is the Nick Nolte character. That's amazing. Yes, I mean— you know, it's not going to come as much of a surprise that I'm not the world's biggest metalhead, but the feud between Dave Mustaine and his ex-Metallica bandmates fascinates me to no end. It's just one of the most intense band-on-band rivalries ever because it's so damn personal. Mustaine was fired from the group literally days before they went into the studio to record their first album, which sent him on the road to being the biggest metal band ever. They put him on a cross-country greyhound, penniless and scrounging for potato chips, for four days with nothing to do but plot his revenge. Damn. That's cold. And he formed Megadeth in an attempt to outmetal Metallica. And just imagine being defined by your worst moment. That's pretty much what happened to Dave Mustaine. His entire life was shaped by this single incident. And Mustaine, to me, is such a compelling, tragicomic hero. He's like Gatsby. He just can't let go of the past. And even when he tries, he can't escape it. It's Metallica. They're that ubiquitous. They're that massive. No matter how big Megadeth get, they'll never be Metallica. 
And yet I know there are true blue metal fans out there who prefer Megadeth to Metallica for the very reason that Megadeth never really went pop. You know, they've stayed true to the metal path for about 35 years, while Metallica pursued MTV fame and power ballad hits. Dave Mustaine isn't as famous as Lars Ulrich, but Dave Mustaine also never became uh, the focus of scorn because he spoke out against Napster. (laughs) So, you know, there are cases for success, whether it's commercial or artistic, to be made on both sides of this equation. So without further ado, let's get into this mess. Like so many of life's unpleasantries, this whole thing is Lars Ulrich's fault. (laughs) It was he who put the classified ad in a local newspaper which read, Drummer looking for another metal musicians to jam with, Tigers of Pentang, Diamond Head, and Iron Maiden. Those were his influences. It was 1981, and the teenage Lars had recently immigrated to L.A. from uh, Denmark with dreams of becoming a pro tennis player like his father. But then he fell prey to the new wave of British heavy metal, heralded by the likes of Diamond Head, Iron Maiden, Venom. His ad was answered by James Hetfield. And James was this painfully shy kid from the L.A. suburb of Downey, which was also home of the Carpenters, interestingly enough. He and Hetfield hit it off, and that became the nucleus of Metallica. If Van Halen was Eddie and Alex, Metallica had these two. You know, when all's said and done, they're the only two consistent members. Now, another guy that answered Lars Ulrich's ad was Dave Mustaine. And Mustaine, at that time, he had played in a local band called Panic. But that band ended fairly early on because both the drummer and the sound guy were killed after their second show, which is unbelievable. Like, a very, I guess, metal way for a metal band to end. But Dave Mustaine was sent adrift by this. It's the first, I guess, of many heartbreaks for him uh, in terms of losing out on rock bands. But he shows up to the Metallica audition, and Lars and James are very impressed by both his gear and his ability to shred on guitar. And they invite him to join the band. And they find that, like, I think Dave initially fit in because him and James had a similar background. Dave Mustaine was raised as a Jehovah's Witness, and James Hetfield was raised as a Christian scientist. So they had that very strict religious background that, of course, drove them into metal music eventually. (laughs) They also both had to deal with fathers who had walked out on their families early on. So they, I think, were both dealing with abandonment issues. Unfortunately, Dave Mustaine was going to have those abandonment issues compounded by his experience in Metallica. But of course, we're getting ahead of ourselves. In early 1982, Metallica recorded their first original song, Hit the Lights, for the Metal Massacre 1 compilation. And they started playing gigs around L.A., but they really struggled to fit into the rock scene, which at that time was basically spandex, hair metal, strippers, partying, all that Sunset Strip stuff. And this wasn't Metallica. Like Dave Mustaine would later say, the other bands wanted the girls, we wanted to rule the world. And they responded to the apathy of the crowds by simply playing louder and faster than anyone, which became a hallmark of their sound. And in the early days of the band, Dave Mustaine was really seen as the virtuoso. He was sort of the guy out front, the focal point. People who knew the band at that time, like Scott Ann of Anthrax, he would say he was the front man. He was the mouthpiece. He was the personality. Uh, James Hetfield was still pretty reserved in developing his onstage persona. And in later years, Dave Mustaine would accuse James of being jealous of getting, of being the one who got all the attention during these early shows because of his, of his own natural charisma. He would say, James' whole frontman persona, he copped from me. In the beginning of the band, he just sang and I did all the guitar work. When he was done singing, he'd walk away from the microphone and I had to walk up to the mic and talk. Now, in case it's not already apparent... Dave Mustaine is like a pretty abrasive character. Like yeah. I, I interviewed Dave Mustaine a long time ago in, in 2002, and was he was like, like a pretty intimidating dude. And you know, I remember asking questions, and he would like pause for like 
it felt like 30 seconds before he would answer. You know, I think just to make me feel like an idiot for asking him any questions. Wait, this was 2000. So this was some kind of monster era. Yeah, well, this is like before some kind of monster. So I don't think that I don't think the movie was out yet. We were talking about whatever Megadeth record. But just like was that guy the on the screen was who you. Oh, my God, that's terrifying. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I think even like when Dave Mustaine was sober. He was a pretty difficult guy to deal with. But in Metallica, the issues with him really started to arise because of his drinking. Now, that seems a little weird to talk about with Metallica because they are one of the most famously like hard-drinking bands of all time, famously nicknamed Alcoholica. Uh, and you know, if you've seen some kind of monster, you know, you know that history with the band. But Dave Mustaine really reminds me of that friend that I think we all had in college at one point where they were basically like the drunken asshole friend, you know, the, the <laughs> friend that like, you know, you like them when they're sober, but like when you go out to the bars, if they have a few too many drinks, they just turn into this very sort of confrontational, aggressive person. And that's what Dave Mustaine was like. You know, he, he later said, you know, I would drink and have fun until someone would refute something I had said. And then that was war, baby. I'd be aggressive and confrontational because I was a violent drunk. So, you know, if you're hanging out, you're partying, everyone's having a good time, but then you have one guy who just like wants to get into arguments all the time and is being pushy about his opinions. I mean, it's, that can be a pretty like wearisome thing to be around. So there's that issue with Dave Mustaine. There's also something uh, that ends up being a pretty big deal. I guess we'll call it the dog incident uh, <laughs> in dog Metallica, incident. where at an earlier uh, rehearsal, Dave Mustaine brought his dog uh, to the rehearsal. And uh, this dog was particularly troublesome to the band's bassist at the time, whose name was Ron McGovney. Total bassist name, by the way. I love the name Rob McGovney. Dirk like, McQuickly. It's like it's exactly. such a fake metal name. It's, yeah, it just reminds me of like a nondescript bassist. Like you knew <laughs> Ron McGovney was not going to be the guy. He was who, not destined for the long haul. Yeah, yeah. It's like if your name is Ron McGovney, you're, you're going to be like a blip in the history of Metallica. <laughs> But anyway, Mustaine brings his dog to the rehearsal, and apparently this dog ends up scratching Ron McGovney's car. And James Hetfield is so incensed by this that he, like, kicks the dog, which is not cool to kick a dog. And Dave Mustaine, you know, he is a drunken asshole, but I think in this case he was justified in getting upset. And he actually, like, just pulled back and, like, punched James Hetfield in the mouth over this. And apparently, like, Mustaine was, like, fired over this fight, but then they brought him back shortly after. But, you know, after you punch someone in your band in the mouth, things are not going to be the same after that. Yeah, so it seems like at that point, Mustaine, uh, his position in in Metallica wasn't terribly tenable at this point. And he continued to terrorize poor Ron McGovney when he was drunk. There was an occasion where he poured beer down the neck of his bass, which caused the pickups on his bass to short out. And Ron freaked out and threw everybody out of his house. I mean, Ron just, just he couldn't hang, basically. I mean, nor should he. He shouldn't have to deal with that. So poor McGovney. he left the band. Uh, poor McGovney. He left the band very soon after. And, uh, and as a replacement, Metallica set out to recruit Cliff Burton, who was in the Bay Area band called Trauma. And he could play these mind-meltingly good bass solos. And they almost sounded like guitar solos. They were so, so dexterous. They were just so, so fast and furious. And uh, James and Lars had seen him perform, and they were just absolutely captivated. So they began trying to woo him, and he agreed on the condition that the band relocate to Northern California. And that's how Metallica became one of San Francisco's favorite sons. It seems pretty amazing that like Metallica would pick up and move to a different part of the state just because of Cliff Burton. You know, like they're already established in Los Angeles, but it's like they wanted him in the band so bad that they were willing to move, you know, several hundred miles north. 
Can you blame him? No, I mean, it really speaks to like how amazing Cliff Burton was. I mean, he was like the Jacko Pistorius of mm-hmm. like metal bass playing, you know, just a virtuoso. And putting him in the band and, you know, sending off poor Ron McGovney into the dustbin of history, I mean, it really was putting Metallica on their way to becoming like this huge band that's going to change the world. But of course, there's still this guy, Dave Mustaine, in the band who uh, is not going to be sticking around much longer. No, it really, it goes down on the trip to New York. And Lars have been circulating their seven-song demo, No No Life Till Leather. And one copy landed in the hands of a character named uh, Johnny Z. And by day, he ran a New Jersey flea market called Rock and Roll Heaven, which was this local metal mecca. And he started a label called Megaforce Records. and And he liked the band. He liked what he heard. And he offered to pay for them to drive out so he could work with them. So the uh, Metallica drove a U-Haul van, supposedly a stolen U-Haul van, uh, and drove this across the country. And they would stop along the way at friends' houses where Dave Mustaine would get really drunk and trash their friends' houses. And this really was sort of the last straw for everybody in the band. I mean, this guy was just disrespecting their friends' homes and property. He, he had to go. So they get to New York. And they're staying at, I think it was Anthrax's practice space up in Queens. I mean, they were sleeping on like U-Haul blankets and eating. They called them bologna on hand sandwiches. They didn't even have white bread. They just had bologna that they would just eat raw. Uh, You know, really, really low resource. And they were playing um, a couple gigs in New York. And and Dave would get drunk during sound checks and heckle the, the headliners and stuff. He was just... A huge liability at this point. In addition to being unpleasant to be around, you could tell he was he was just a liability because of his drinking. And this really sets the stage for probably one of the most notorious band dismissals in rock history. I love that we know the date that he was fired. <laughs> yeah. April 11th, 1983, a day that will forever live in metal infamy. Dave Mustaine wakes up. He's sleeping on this, I think, mattress, essentially, just laid on the floor of their rehearsal space. And he wakes up, he just hung over as hell, and he looks up and he sees James Hadfield, Lars Ulrich, and Cliff Burton standing above him. And they tell him, essentially, that you're fired. And not only are you fired, but, like, we bought a bus ticket for you, like a four-day Greyhound trip back to California, and it leaves in an hour. So, <laughs> and, and, and oh. Mustaine is, like, you know, dazed. Again, he's, you know, he drank hard the night before, so he's really hung over, doesn't really know what's going on. And, I mean, it seems like this was intentional. Like, they were ambushing him in this weakened state because they didn't want to have a fight about it. You know, it seems like they just wanted to get this over as quickly as possible. There's that story that Mustaine tells that, like, he boarded the bus with, like, a small bag of potato chips, and that was it. Like, that was, oh. like, one of the details that he remembers, that he all he had to eat was potato chips. They and he was, like, still kind of drunk, right? Yeah, he was wasted. He's hungover. They shove him on this bus with potato chips, and uh, he's gone out of the band. And, like, uh, James and Lars, they spend the rest of the day just getting wasted, you know, because I think they felt bad about doing this, but they knew ultimately that there was no other choice, that Dave Mustaine was, uh, you know, just a terrible person to be around. You know, again, like, we've all known someone like that, that maybe for a while it's kind of fun to hang out with them. But for all of Mustaine's talent as a as a guitar player and also, you know, the charisma that he had on stage, I think Metallica felt like, okay, we're we're approaching a point where we're gonna maybe be able to put out a record and we're not gonna be able to get to where we're going if this guy's in in the band. It does make me think about that story in Guns N' Roses, like when they fired Steven Adler oh, for yeah. like doing too many drugs. And it is sort of a weird thing, again, because Metallica was this famously hard drinking band to fire a guy for drinking too much. You know, it is that situation like where you're writing speeding tickets at the Indy 500, you know, like this one guy gets punished for what everyone else in the the group is doing. But again, it does seem like Metallica maybe really had no other choice. 
And that, I think, was really what hurt to for Mustaine, was that, you know, he would admit in later years, like, yeah, I should have been kicked out of Metallica. I should have been kicked out of Megadeth, to be quite honest. Like, I, I, I know that I was not good to be around. I think he resented the lack of warning and the lack of an option of going to get treatment, which James himself did in later years. So I think it was really the double standard. It was like, why did I get kicked out of this band? Well, James Hetfield was treated with compassion. I mean, I'm sure over the 20 years between those two incidents, like we, we understood how to treat addiction and alcoholism a lot better. But still, there was an element, like you said, of we was it me? Did they just want me out of the band? Was it a rejection of me and not my my disease, not wanting to deal with with my problem? And I think that really hurt him. Because, you know, it was the second time in a few years that a band had been just ripped away from him in an instant. You know, in a space of two hours, he lost the people that he considered to be his best friends and the band that he, he'd allowed to define himself. And now he just had four days on a Greyhound bus with a bag of potato chips to just mull all this over. And, you know, just he, seething. Right. Just yeah, seething raging. and plotting revenge. Right. <laughs> it seems like his... It seems like his dreams of revenge, like, started, like, almost immediately. Immediately. Oh, totally. I mean, he... He, she's bored to tears and he's like, you know, trying to, to read anything he can get his hands on to get his mind off of, you know, what his life's become in this moment. And he ha gets his hand on a handbill from a, a Democratic senator, Alan Cranston, I think is his name. And he warned against an escalating nuclear threat. And the phrase on this handbill was the arsenal of Megadeth can't be rid. And that phrase inspired uh. Mustaine to scribble down lyrics to a song. And ultimately, that was the, uh, the name for his next band. Of course, he took out the A in death. That was like, I guess, the final poetic stroke of genius for uh, Dave Mustaine with <laughs> it was either that it's or like, an oh. umlaut. You needed an umlaut. Yeah, or, yeah, exactly. Take out the A in death, and we have a most metal name. So while Dave Mustaine is on this bus plotting revenge against Metallica, Metallica already has a replacement lined up for Dave Mustaine, and that is, of course, Kirk Hammett, who is the guitarist in Metallica to this day. They he was a member at the time of a Bay Area band called Exodus, which is also a very famous metal band. They flew him out to New York to audition. They flew for Metallica. him. <laughs> they made yeah, him exactly. stay and take the bus, but exactly. Apparently, he uh, impressed the guys at Metallica by just nailing Dave Mustaine solos on songs like "Seek and Destroy." I also have to think that like a big part of the appeal for Kirk Hammett for the people in Metallica was his personality. You know, I've interviewed Kirk Hammett, and I mean, I think this is apparent to anyone who's ever like seen an interview with him anywhere that he's like a very laid back guy. And he seems like generally like pretty unassuming and like sweet natured and basically just like the opposite of, of Dave Mustaine. <laughs> yeah. Like I think like Kirk Hammett also had his own substance abuse problems. But my guess with Hammett is that like when he got wasted, he was probably just like giving lots of hugs yeah. and bro hugs and that sort of thing. He wasn't going to be like, you know, starting fights and, and uh, punching people in the mouth. So it, it seemed like, you know, musically Kirk Hammett could deliver what Dave Mustaine did, but also – Maybe even more crucially, he added balance to the band. Like, the power center was always going to be James and Lars. And I feel like Dave Mustaine would have threatened that, you know, even if he wasn't like a drunken jerk. Like, he would have asserted his own power in the band. Whereas Kirk Hammett, I think, just was more naturally deferential and was going to, like, play his role as the lead guitarist in Metallica and not threaten anyone else's role. And, you know, in later years, Mustaine would say not very complimentary things about Kirk. And Kirk, to his credit, never rose to the bait. He, would always, he was always very civil with Mustaine in interviews and things like that, which I, I think says a lot about his character also. You're right. There, there's a sweetness to him there, which, uh, which I think that the band desperately needed between the, uh, the, the Lars-James duo. 
Now, I'm sure what was, you know, even more aggravating to Dave Mustaine, you know, he's been fired from this band. He has to figure out a new path forward in his own career. But then, you know, Metallica, they put out Kill 'Em All in 1983. And there's like a significant number of songs that like Mustaine played a role in writing. I mean, it's like he's not in the band anymore, but like he is still like a ghost figure, really, in Metallica on that first record. Right, he's credited on four songs. The Four Horsemen, which was on the, the No Life to Leather uh, uh, demo under the title Mechanics. It was Jump in the Fire, Phantom Lord, which uh, Mustaine would later rework as Megadeth's This Was My Life on Countdown to Extinction, and Metal Militia. And then there's also debate about how much input that uh, Mustaine had for uh, Seek and Destroy, too. Uh, and he's also credited on the band's second album, Ride the Lightning, including the title track and the instrumental closer, The Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, and... By the way, these are all great songs. Yeah. I mean, these are not like, you know, just like whatever afterthought types things, especially the call of Cthulhu. That's like one of my favorite Metallica songs. And you can definitely hear the influence of Dave Mustaine like on those tracks. Like to me, like they are the most sort of like Megadeth like sounding songs in the Metallica discography. So Mustaine arrives back in California after this four day bus journey and he's broke and he had to get a, a proper job. So he had a brief stint as a telemarketer. And, uh, which, I mean, can you imagine getting like, you know, Dave Mustaine <laughs> calling to try to sell you like a credit card or like low interest loan or encyclopedias or something? Hello, me. It's <laughs> me again, selling credit cards. I mean, it's pretty amazing. I wish somebody recorded that. But uh, his bitterness over this dismissal just festered. And he put together a new band specifically to compete with Metallica. He would say he wanted to out-metal Metallica. Uh, in later years, he would say, I measured my success by whether or not I ate that day. My vision was to destroy Metallica and stop living in a van. And he spent much of 1984 recruiting the perfect members for his mission. You know, he'd been burned by Metallica, so he approached Megadeth as basically like a metal autocrat. Like, he, he would say, democracy doesn't work in a band. I have to have my own band to make music exactly the way I want to hear it with no compromises to anyone else's ego whatsoever. So he has this vision but unfortunately, his drive to out-metal Metallica was also matched by his addiction. He gets a recording deal with Combat Records, and he reportedly spent half of his really paltry studio advance on uh, alcohol and drugs rather than studio time. And this is a big reason why uh, Megadeth's 1985 debut, Killing Is My Business and Business Is Good, wasn't as strong as it could have been. I mean, he would later say, simply put, we ran out of money. But there's sort of a lack of production quality on the album. It's, it's almost lo-fi. There's sort of a weak sound there. Now, when you listen to the next Megadeth record, which is Peace Sells But Who's Buying, I mean, I think you can hear like a significant upgrade in like songwriting and the production. I mean, that's where Megadeth, I think, is starting to sound like a real deal, like big time metal band. Although things were still like very chaotic behind the scenes. Uh, the, the band's bass player, Dave Ellison, has this great quote where he says that Peace Sells was recorded on a diet of heroin, burgers, and cigarettes. <laughs> Uh, so, so you know, Stephen so, Stills made uh, made Manassas too. Same diet, yeah, exactly. Stephen Stills yeah, it's diet. A, it's a very popular diet here on the Rivals <laughs> podcast, I think. And you know, I think that shows uh, a contrast with Metallica. I mean, Metallica, I think, always had uh, a lot of craziness going on behind the scenes, but they always strike me as like like from the beginning being a very professional like careerist band. Like they <laughs> knew that they wanted to be huge and they would deliver on the biggest stages. And that's how they were able to build their career as the 80s progressed. Whereas Megadeth, I think, because of Dave Mustaine, maybe not quite as reliable in that regard. And they were a little bit, I think, more hamstrung by 
you know, some of the craziness that was going on. Of course, they were also hamstrung by, again, Dave Mustaine's just like psychopathic hatred of Metallica. I mean, when it's your goal to destroy another band, you know, like that's not maybe the best goal to have. Like you're not really focusing on what you're doing. You're always thinking about somebody else and you're just setting yourself up ultimately uh, for disappointment, especially when you are comparing yourself to what's going to become the most, you know, commercially successful metal band ever. And, uh, you know, kind of going back to that professionalism uh, thing I was talking about earlier, you know, one thing I think that really hurt Megadeth is that Dave Mustaine was not a great interview. And I mean, he was great in the sense that he'd have like wonderful quotes, but he wasn't very cooperative with reporters. He could be very standoffish. He wasn't somebody that like I think people like to talk to. Uh, which, you know, like when you're building your career and you're trying to make connections, it is important to kiss the ring to a certain degree <laughs> if you want people to help you out. And and there was going to be no ring kissing at all with Dave Mustaine. And I'm sure one thing that drove him mad is that, like, people wouldn't stop asking him about Metallica. And this was not something that he ever really got over. And, like, not only did he not get over it, but it seemed like the trauma of being kicked out of that band was always very close to the surface. Uh, like, there's... <laughs> This one time, like, he was asked about Metallica, and this is a great quote. He says, it's like getting into a car crash. Every time you close your eyes, you relive the car crash, and every time someone brings up the name of that band, it's like reliving a car crash. But getting over it, I have to do this on my own terms. I can't go up to someone who's been raped and say, get over it. How insensitive is that? Jesus. It's pretty insensitive. It's as a, I would say it's as insensitive as likening getting kicked out of a right. band to being raped. That, yeah. That's a pretty insensitive thing, too. Uh, but yeah, like th- this was clearly like just all consuming for him, even as Megadeth was starting to take off. I mean, I'm having a hard time thinking of any other band that was ever formed for the express purpose of crushing another band. Is this unique in rock history? I think it may be. Well, I mean, yeah, I think it's unique because of the motivation and also because Mustaine was like very successful. Like, you know, it'd be like if Pete Best you know, had formed another band <laughs> after being kicked out of the Beatles that, like, weren't as big as the Beatles, but, like, maybe were as big as the Kinks or the Who, you know? Like, that doesn't really happen very often, so that's unique. But then, you know, the fact that Mustaine was so upfront about this, you know, I, I'm sure that there's been people who have been fired out of bands who felt motivated by, like, wanting to do better than the people that fired them, but they don't usually talk about it, you know? They, they keep it to the themselves. Band. Yeah, yeah. like, Mustaine... I'm sure he was sick of being asked about Metallica all the time, but he also welcomed those questions by the way he acted. You know, it's like, you know, if you're this crazy person who's obsessed with this one thing, people are going to ask you about that one thing every time they interview you. I mean, it's just a natural thing to talk about. And, you know, his relationship, even when he was getting Megadeth off the ground in the mid-80s with Metallica, I mean, there was a certain still emotional closeness there. Like when Cliff Burton died in the bus crash in 1986, Mustaine reportedly cried for days and was just absolutely shattered. And Lars would say that around the same time, he and Dave were still close. And he said really nice things about Peace Cells. He said that the album blew me away and became my favorite record for a long time. And that whenever Megadeth came through San Francisco, he and Lars would find each other and go drink and do a ton of drugs and sit around. And so, you know, he would say that, uh, that apparently Metallica even played Dave an advanced pressing of Justice for All and invited him to their shows. So it's strange to believe. I mean, maybe it was a case of like, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. I don't know. Or maybe it was still him desperately trying to maybe ingratiate his way back into the band. Who knows? 
But there was a case of, in, I think, 1988, when Megadeth played the Monsters of Rock Festival, uh, Lars actually came out and helped them with an encore. did a cover of Anarchy in the UK together. So, yeah, there was a, a closeness there, despite all of Mustaine's rage at that period. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good. And I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Yeah, I mean, I think Lars would later say that, like, like he blamed the press, essentially, yeah. for playing this up and driving a wedge between the two bands. But the thing that he would leave out is that the press was running with quotes that Dave Mustaine would give them. Right. You know, it's like like he like I don't like question that he was actually close with Lars Ulrich at this time. But it, it just seems like publicly he would go out of his way often to say bad things about Metallica. 
And that, you know, the reverse wasn't true. Like Metallica really did not say anything bad about Megadeth. Of course, because they were the bigger band, they weren't as threatened by Megadeth. It really does seem like it's Mustaine struggling to get over this. Even as like by like the early 90s, Megadeth was like a pretty big MTV band themselves. Like that record Countdown to Extinction, you know, spawned like several like like pretty famous videos. Uh, and they again, they weren't as big as Metallica, but they were still a pretty big band. And they actually ended up finally touring together a bit in 1993 when Metallica asked Megadeth to open for them. I mean, wasn't that the deal? I mean, I'm sure like in Mustaine's mind... They were it was co-headlining. a co-headline. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. they were definitely opening for Metallica. Right. I mean, still, they, they they were still Metallica. Yeah, when they finally played together, I mean, this was a huge moment for Dave. I mean, he goes out onto the stage and he gives this, this great speech. He says, it's a very historical day. Ten years of bullshit is over between Megadeth and Metallica. Lots of cheers. There were lots of assholes who said this would never, ever happen, but I guess we proved them all wrong. His big war is over speech. Who are those assholes, David? Like, I, I feel like I, I think Dave Mustaine was like at the lead of those assholes saying that it would never work. There's another story like from this tour that I think just speaks to like, you know, how awkward the, this could be. Like, you know, even if they were friends, if there was still like tension that was always going to exist you know, between Mustaine and the Metallica guys. Like apparently there was a show like where Mustaine showed up backstage in Metallica's dressing room and when he walked in James Hetfield like cut up some sugar like it was cocaine and like kind of made a show of like doing it I think it was was supposed to be a joke essentially but like Mustaine had like recently overdosed yeah like I don't think like Hetfield was like deliberately making fun of the overdose unless I'm being too kind to Hetfield there I think it was just like a drug joke but like Mustaine took it the wrong way way in spite of that speech that he gave on stage i mean that tour i mean i think it was like hard on his ego oh yeah it was rough i mean he would watch from the wings keeping a really close eye on kirk hammett and he he wasn't impressed i mean he would say you know i think it was in behind the music he'd say i thought god kirk's horrible and i also thought this is supposed to be me which is just for years like i was saying earlier dave went out of his way to slag off kirk who's really never been anything other than civil to to dave in the press And probably the most famous quote Dave gave was in September 2004. He said, I don't really care about Kirk, which is a lie. He stole my job, but at least I got to bang his girlfriend before he took my job. How do I taste Kirk? Uh, (sighs) Yeah, it's like, you know, I mean, Kirk Hammett doesn't have to say anything about Dave Mustaine because he won. You know, when you're the person who's in the biggest metal band of all time, you know, you can uh, just let people take shots at you counting. while you're like counting your like <laughs> tens of millions of dollars. But again, it, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, like Lars Ulrich would always talk about how he felt that the press was trying to split Metallica and Megadeth and create drama where there wasn't really drama. Like there's this one quote where Lars Ulrich says, you know, there's almost like two relationships going here. There was Lars and Dave hanging out, kind of doing their thing on the side, which at times was a little odd. You'd go, wait a minute, I'm supposed to not like this guy because that's what's in this week's <laughs> Kerrang, you know. But if you read that week's Kerrang, it would probably be Dave Mustaine saying something mean about Metallica. And that would continue on and on and on, even as, you know, they go through these periods where they're friendly again. I feel like it really culminates with the movie Some Kind of Monster. Like, to me, like, the story of that movie is, like, such a great encapsulation of how, like, even when, you know, Mustaine could make a show of reconciling with the guys in Metallica, it would always end up turning in a negative direction, you know, in, in a very surprising way. It would become about how he was wronged by Metallica, even though it was, you know, this was supposed to be a move that reconciled them. The, 
Metallica's doing this documentary uh, that came out in 2004, Some Kind of Monster, which is basically a group therapy session. Is the, they struggle not to break up amid their whole litany of problems. Their Napster lawsuits, Jason Newstead's departure, James Hetfield's substance abuse issues, and just general low morale during the sessions for what would become St. Anger. And to help them through this, the band hires what they call the performance enhancement coach, which is basically a therapist. And one of the things that this person recommends is a really frank discussion with Dave Mustaine, which ends up going down on September 13th, 2001. So just to heighten the, the emotional level even more, this is two days after 9-11, Dave is more than down to have this discussion with his ex-bandmates. He even says, I've been waiting for this day for a long time, which is very ominous. And the footage in the film is incredibly emotionally charged, incredibly hard to watch. I mean, just... It's yeah, nuts. Crazy. I mean, Dave's telling Lars that getting kicked out of Metallica ruined his life. He said, I had nothing, then I had everything, and then I had nothing again, which was fine. But then having someone stand on my head and keep me in the water, that's what he felt like Metallica did. No matter how many platinum albums Megadeth would earn, he always lived in the shadow of the more successful Metallica. And he'd say, you know, it's, no matter how many years go by, I think it was 18 years earlier at this point, it still feels like yesterday. And getting back to what we said earlier, for him, it was really about not being given a second chance. That was a supposedly what his the first thing he said when they told him he's out of the band. He said, what? No warning? No second chance? There are ways to address what was going on with my problem. Who I am sober is totally different from who I am drunk. We never gave it a try. From his point of view, they never really knew the real him, the uh, sober him in the band. And he was hurt that he wasn't able to really to do that, to have that opportunity and this conversation is going on while James Hetfield is seeking treatment for alcoholism, too. So I think that made it seem sort of doubly unfair that, that they're dredging up these horrific moments from his past now that he is sober while James is treated with this level of compassion. Okay, you can stay in the band, go get help. And I think that's really something that I think Mustaine should feel justifiably upset about. You know, when I watch that scene, I feel like it's a pretty honest and fair depiction of how Dave Mustaine feels about getting kicked out of Metallica and how I think he'll always feel about it. But when Mustaine himself saw the movie, he got really upset. And I think it's because he comes off as looking kind of pathetic in the movie. Like he looks like a guy who's still hung up on this thing that at that point had happened about 20 years earlier. And again, I think it's an honest depiction, but I think maybe it was too honest for Dave Mustaine because he really felt like he had been set up. You know, he blamed the fact that this scene was filmed, you know, two days after 9-11. He said, like, I was more emotional than I would have otherwise been. He also said that, like, you know, I talked to Lars for three hours and they used five minutes of this conversation. I mean, of course, they weren't going to use all three hours, dude. You know, like, they're not going to use the whole thing. But, you know, he felt that the that the parts that they cut for the film weren't representative in his mind of what the conversation was actually like. He said, you know, they didn't show the scene where I gave it to Lars for how he treated me and Lars ran off to the bathroom <laughs> crying. You know, they only showed me crying. You know, I just think that he ultimately felt like weak, that he looked weak in this movie, even if, again, I think it's an honest depiction. I think, again, like as we've discussed in this episode, he's never been able to let go of being fired from Metallica. And it seems like what he says in the scenes that you see in the movie are, you know, just sort of like this unfiltered expression of the hurt uh, and anger that he felt about that. I think Dave just wanted to be seen as like yelling at Lars Ulrich in the movie. I think he like wanted to be seen as like more of a badass than he actually is. Uh, so he was very angry about how the movie turned out. He actually ended up writing a song too about that movie. I don't know if you've heard the song. It's on the record, uh, The System Has Failed, which is not one of the best Megadeth records, by the way. I'll just throw that out there. 
came out in 2004. The song is called Something That I'm Not. And he doesn't like mention some kind of monster by name or Lars Ulrich by name, but there are references to One Big Charade, Fraud, and my favorite reference, Little Baby. <laughs> uh, presumably Lars Ulrich is the little baby in that situation. So again, this ends up being a, a thing where you watch the movie and you feel like, wow, it's amazing that these guys can get together and they can be honest emotionally with each other and be vulnerable. But for Mustaine, it's just like another betrayal. And that's how he perceives it. And instead of being able to put this behind him, it just exacerbates his feelings of betrayal even more. I got to say, I would happily watch the director's cut with all three hours of their meeting. Like, for real. <laughs> that's true. Like, that's, that's, that's true. That's money on the table. Yeah, this should be like... like like the Blu-ray uh, <laughs> yeah. extras should be like a three-hour, just unedited, you know, thing of Lars and Dave going at it. Which, you know, I mean, watching it, I I thought I didn't think he looked. I mean, he didn't look like a badass, but I don't think he looked weak either. That was a very articulate expression of of what he had gone through, and you know, just just of loss. He'd say, you know, all I had was you and James. Right. We had dreams together, and I sold everything to join that dream, and then it ended. And so I don't really know what he expected really i mean i guess other than like you know like laura's yeah, running out of the room crying maybe yeah i i, I agree with you i think mistaine actually yeah. comes off really well in the movie but i guess i'm just speculating that that is his problem with it i wonder if he felt that he came off as weak or vulnerable or as like a crybaby or something and that's why he was so against the movie because otherwise i don't really understand his yeah. reaction at all so he makes this big stink about the metallica documentary and lars gets his revenge in 2009, when Metallica are inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And despite Dave's role as a founding member, Lars said that he wasn't going to be inducted because he never actually recorded an album with the band. And then that, that was Lars' justification. He said, you've got to kind of cap it somewhere. Dave Mustaine never played on any Metallica records. No disrespect to him, but there were half a dozen other people that were in the lineup in the early days. We thought the fair thing to do would be to include everybody that played on a Metallica record. And then he had a pretty brutal parting shot. Dave Mustaine was in the band for 11 months, predominantly in 1982. I'm not trying to play it down. I have nothing but respect and admiration for his accomplishments since. But there's an implied, but he's not really, he's completely downplaying his influence in Metallica history in a way that I think is unfair. I mean, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I think he should have been inducted. Um, yeah, he didn't play on the records, but like he co-wrote some significant songs when he was in the band. And I think it's fair to say that Kirk Hammett was just imitating what Dave Mustaine did in the early days. You know, I think Kirk Hammett eventually, you know, in the later records, he developed his own voice. But he was clearly brought in because he could replicate what Dave Mustaine had done when he was in the band. To put him on the same level as like <laughs> Ron McGovney or something, cool. I think is like just... Yeah, it, it, it's blatantly like like untrue. Like it's Mustaine had a huge, I think, influential role in shaping the sound of Metallica early. And it on. would have been this incredible sort of you know peacemaking moment between them all. Uh, instead, Dave's just invited to attend the ceremony as a guest, which he turned down. Understandably, he said that he had commitments playing a European tour with with Judas Priest. Uh, That's the official version. He would later say, you know, what do, what do you think? I'm nuts. I'm going to go just sit in the audience while, you know, they're being inducted and I'm just like, you know, cast out. Like that's masochism is what he'd say. So, I mean, understandably, he didn't show up and he, he he's still, you know, grumbling about it in the press. And this really makes James Hetfield say, you know what? This guy's ridiculous. This has got, he's got to let it go. He gives an interview around the same time as the Hall of Fame induction. I mean, Dave's not in this band for a reason, he said. And this reason is super simple. He was in the band for 11 months, and it goes on and on and on and on. 
I don't know any other band on the planet that there was a member in the band for a short amount of time and they've still got this big a chip on his shoulder. It's insane. You know what? He's in love and that's fine because we love him back. So <laughs> James Hetfield oh, characterizes it as unrequited love on Mustaine's part. And yeah. I think he's right. I mean, I don't know how else you really can look at this other than, you know, Mustaine had a girlfriend in the early 80s that dumped him and he like hasn't gotten over the <laughs> girlfriend, even though he married somebody else, you know, uh, he's still stuck on Metallica. And even here, you know, it's like he gets dissed over the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing and he can't let it go. He can't just like let Metallica do their thing. He has to find a way to get revenge. And he does it, I think, in a pretty effective way. You know, as petty as this is, you have to tip your cap to him for the interview that he gives in 2009 to Rolling Stone, where he tells the magazine that there was a rumor in the mid-80s that Metallica was going to fire Lars, I guess after the Master of Puppets tour, and they didn't because Cliff Burton died. And if Cliff Burton had lived, then Lars Ulrich would have been out of the band. And he actually got a supporting witness for this, Scott Ian from Anthrax. He confirmed that this was a rumor. And then Kirk Hammett also said that, like, well, yeah, I think we were maybe mad at Lars at some point, And maybe we said something to somebody. It was a bigger deal than it actually was. But it's like he didn't deny that this was something that was, you know, kind of floating in the air in the mid-80s. So, you know, again, it's a super petty thing to bring up, you know, like more than 20 years after the fact. But I think for Mustaine, you know, again, someone who's defined by, you know, how he was fired from Metallica, for him to say that, like, well, Lars could have been also out of the band if not for, you know, this terrible tragedy that happened. I mean, there must have been something, I guess, like sickly satisfying <laughs> about that. Uh, for Dave Mustaine. Oh, I'm sure. And also just to show cracks between the, the James-Lars duo, too, which is, you know, just to pit them against one another and and to to refresh all those those wounds 20 years later is, is, is a pretty cunning. Yeah, a exactly. chaos agent. A chaos agent, Dave Mustaine. <laughs> and again, I go back to the James Hetfield quote. He's right. Dave Mustaine's in the band for 11 months, and yet it's like you have your ex in your life forever. Like, you can't get rid of your ex, you know, your crazy ex that haunts you forever. Uh, you know, they're going to keep, you know, causing havoc, you know, decades after the fact. Is this around the same time that Mustaine writes his memoir, too, which I'm sure is just another opportunity for him to vent his spleen about about Metallica? Yeah, there was uh, that thing about how he accused Metallica of ripping off this song that Megadeth recorded for the Bill and Ted Bogus Journey soundtrack called <laughs> Go to Hell. And there's a, there's a passage in that song, like, where Mustaine starts doing the Lord's Prayer, and... Then, you know, soon after that, Metallica, of course, they put out Enter Sandman, which has the Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep passage in the middle of the song. So, yeah, he accused Metallica of ripping him off. Although, really, they all just ripped off the Lord, the Lord's prayer. So so the Lord himself is the one who really has a case here for uh, plagiarism. Case is pending. Case is pending. So in spite of all this sniping, James Hetfield finds himself getting nostalgic around the time of the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. He's thinking about all the other bands that came up with Metallica. And this leads in 2010 to the big four shows. They got It's like a massive metal piece of chords. You got Metallica, Anthrax, Slayer, and Megadeth. It was the first time that Megadeth and Metallica had shared a stage together since that 1993 British show where, where, uh, where Dave gave that big speech on stage. Uh, and Metallica, for, to their credit, made a, a concerted effort to try to ease tension between all the bands before the show. They would organize big group dinners beforehand like team building type of stuff so that everybody could hang out uh and the vibe was 
apparently, reportedly really good. And all the bands would hug and jam together. And it, it was a really positive experience for everybody, uh, particularly Dave, who uh, joined Metallica on stage for a group jam on Diamond Head's Helpless. And Kirk Hammett gives Dave the solo, which Dave was really touched by. For him, he said it was kind of a symbolic passing of the torch back to me. It was a nice gesture. And it, it really helped uh, relations improve between everybody. And then that really was a big moment for him. The only dark cloud that appeared on the, all these big four shows that went on off and on for about 18 months uh, was right before their show at Yankee Stadium in September 2011. Two days before, Megadeth pulled out of the concert because uh, Dave Mustaine had to undergo surgery for uh, a neck and spine condition that he said was due to years of headbanging, which I don't know, may or may not be true. And apparently he heard that Metallica's co-manager called him a, quote, pussy for not playing the gig. So a day before he's about to go into surgery, potentially, you know, life-saving surgery, according to him, uh, he changed his mind. He flies back to uh, New York, does the gig. He's wheeled on the stage in like a golf cart or something. And he plays his gig, I think in like a neck brace or something too, to sort of like prove it to the Metallica camp that he's got He's got the metal to do this. Like, you know, he, he said he had signs all over the stage that said, do not headbang, because apparently if he did, he was like close to getting paralyzed if he did. He also, we talked to the press, he would say that both James Hetfield and Tom Araya from Slayer had similar surgeries. And the implication being, yet again, my medical issues aren't treated with the same degree of compassion and care as theirs. With alcoholism, if it's neck problems, some everybody else, they get a pass. But with me... I'm called a pussy or kicked out of the band or something. And I thought that was that was very interesting. But um, for him, the best moment of all these reunion shows was the Metallica 30th anniversary concert in December 2011. They played it in San Francisco at the Fillmore Auditorium. And Metallica invited a lot of their former members back. Uh, one of them was Ron McGovney. And uh, they also got Mustaine back. And Kirk, once again, uh, let him take some solos. And for this was really all that Mustaine ever wanted. He was back for this one night only. He was back in Metallica. He was playing lead. This was all he'd ever wanted. This was a, a peak moment for him. And of course, as peak moments go with Dave Mustaine, it was downhill after this. Yeah, I, I just, I think you really have to, again, do a shout out to Kirk Hammett. Like how cool is Kirk Hammett that like he let Dave Mustaine do this? Again, this guy who is like, you know, Mustaine has dissed Hammett for years you know, Hammett could very easily like play the diva card and not allow Mustaine even on the same stage with him, much less to take over the solos. But again, I think it speaks to how magnanimous Hammett was. Although I think you know, bringing Mustaine back in the band, it just again, it seems like the guy who is obsessed with the girlfriend. The girlfriend maybe like offers to like go out to dinner with the guy, and then the guy thinks that they're gonna get get, get back together because it's like, oh, finally, I have a chance to get back into the fold. Because after these concerts, Mustaine starts talking about a Metallica Megadeth no, supergroup. No, like he floats this idea into the media, which is never going to happen. Why would Metallica do this? Metallica, very strong brand. They could tour on their own. They don't need Dave Mustaine. Mustaine probably needs Metallica more than than vice versa. And he starts talking about this in the press. Mustaine does like it's going to happen. And, of course, it's up to the guys in Metallica to pump the brakes on this. And, and James Hetfield has, I think, a pretty great quote where he says, This is the Dave that we kind of <laughs> wanted to forget about. You know, the big mouth that just wants to go, go, go. And, again, like, you know, he says that, but then he couches it in, like, you know, 
affection for Mustaine ultimately. He says, you know, there's an authenticity about him when he speaks. He doesn't think too much before he does. He just goes off the cuff. And he said that's kind of endearing, but also it creates problems for us because he says these things and then we have to answer for them. And then Dave's answer, I think, again, it just speaks to the passive aggression that is inherent in this relationship. He says, I guess my whole thing was that I wanted them to know that I loved them and that I missed them and I enjoyed playing with them. If that's not mutual, then I understand. I still respect him and I still care about the guy. If he doesn't want to play with me anymore, that's cool. Of course, it's not cool. We all know it's not cool with him. And the whole thing of like, well, I just wanted them to know that I love them, and but if they don't love me back, you know, poor me. You know, going right back to the self-pity thing, you know, it just shows like, I guess, like the vicious cycle that was in play with these bands at this time. But even with this vicious cycle, you know, and like all of the negative mojo that's come mainly from Dave Mustaine, you still get the sense that there is like a friendship here. Like as maddening as Mustaine is, I think in a lot of ways, it seems like there is like the affection that you would have for anyone that you've like lived very intense periods of your life with. Like if you were in a war or something, like you're always going to be friends with your war buddies, you know, and I think there's like a similar thing with Metallica and Megadeth where, you know, as maddening as Mustaine's going to be, it's like James and Lars, they're always going to have a place in their heart for Oh, absolutely. And you see that with with Mustaine's recent cancer diagnosis. I mean, which is really brutal. I mean, he's been given it everything he's got. I think he's had like 51 radiation treatments and nine chemo treatments or something. And he was touched when James Hetfield reached out. He said, I got a text from my old brother, James Hetfield, and I was so, so happy to hear from him. Contrary to what anybody says and contrary to any of the act that we put on, I love James and I know that James loves me and cares about me. You can see that when the moment of truth is here and I'm telling the world that I've got a life-threatening disease, who comes to stand next to me? James. And I think uh, it seems like Dave Mustaine is doing yeah. better now, like with his with his cancer treatment. So that's great news. I really look forward to the day when all these guys are in wheelchairs and they're still saying terrible things about each other's <laughs> guitar solos. You know, that's something I hope really uh, comes into play in the future. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good. And I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? 
All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. We've now reached the part of the episode where we give the pro side of each part of the rivalry. Let's talk about Metallica first. I mean, look, they're the most popular metal band of all time. While Dave Mustaine was a crucial member early on, there's no question that Metallica's most popular music was made without him. Uh, They ultimately didn't need Dave Mustaine, and they were probably happier for having kicked him to the curb. You know, as as traumatic as that was probably in the moment, it just seems like for being able to live inside of this band, it was just going to go a lot smoother getting rid of Dave Mustaine and bringing in, you know, mellow, happy-go-lucky Kirk Hammett. And, you know, Metallica is still a band today. They're still playing huge shows, putting out, you know, very successful records. And um, I'm sure that's why. I mean, I think if Mustaine had stayed in the band, they probably would have imploded back in the 1980s. Yeah, I mean, like you said earlier, the ultimate argument ender is essentially they're Metallica. They're the biggest-selling metal band of all time, one of the most influential bands, period, in history. They set the template for what a heavy metal band is supposed to look like and sound like, I think. You know, I mean, and I think that although they didn't always keep a consistent sound, I think their highs are, you know, without question higher than than uh, than Megadeth. I mean, the Black Album, Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets, Justice for All, it's the foundation of modern metal. And, you know, plus, this is crucial, they don't have Dave Mustaine singing. <laughs> right. Hello, me. <laughs> I like Dave Mustaine's voice. I think it's a pretty cool voice. But, yeah, yeah, it, it, they definitely not only survive without Mustaine, but they thrived without Dave Mustaine. But going to the pro-Megadeth side, you know, I don't think you can really underestimate how difficult it was for Mustaine to form a new band and really become, like, not as successful as Metallica, but, like, more successful than, like, 99% of metal bands ever. I mean, I brought up this analogy earlier, but, like, imagine if Pete Best, after he was fired from the Beatles, had, like, formed the Kinks or the Who, you know, or another, like, prominent... British rock band, not as big as the Beatles, but still very successful. I mean, that's essentially what Dave Mustaine did with Megadeth. And yes, he's very petty. And yes, he hasn't been able to get over getting kicked out of Metallica. But like, maybe pettiness is good for your career sometimes. <laughs> that's I, what the show has taught if, us. If his goal, well, yeah, exactly. If, if your goal was to get revenge on Metallica and this sort of all-consuming hatred is what is driving you in your career, 
I mean, it propelled Megadeth to like millions in record sales and into playing big concerts. You know, maybe it also caused Mustaine to get sick later in his life because you can't carry around that yeah. much bile, I think, and have a healthy life ultimately. But yeah, I think what Mustaine was able to do, you know, he was put in a pretty big hole when he was fired and he dug his way out of it. And here we are, you know, almost 40 years after he was fired. And Mustaine and Megadeth are still going strong and, you know, more power to them. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, a lot of the pro-Megadeth arguments always seem to have this, like, air of contrarianism. And my heart goes out to Dave Mustaine just because, you know, as he said, I think he said it in some kind of monster, people hate him purely by virtue of the fact that he's not in Metallica, you know? I mean, he's beaten himself up about this truth over the years. He doesn't need legions of other metalheads gang up on him, too. And, you know, although Metallica obviously had much higher highs, I think Megadeth had a really great, consistent career, especially in the 90s when, you know, you could argue that Megadeth in the 90s with Rust in Peace, Countdown to Extinction, and Euthanasia gave uh, Metallica's run, uh, 90s run, a run for their money. I think that they're way more productive than Metallica in recent years. And uh, for all of Dave's shortcomings as a vocalist, I think that his songs tend to have more complexity to them, more complex riffs. And, uh, you know, let's not forget, he co-wrote some of Metallica's best early songs, too. And um, and also, and this is crucial, he didn't team up with Lou Reed for Lulu. Oh, I don't like I'm that sorry. Lulu uh, shade It, it had to come up at some point. That's one sense. of Metallica's greatest achievements, and I'm going to go to my grave arguing that. Now, looking at Metallica and Megadeth together, I mean, look, this feud is like one of the best in metal history, and us hosting a feuds podcast, we love that sort of thing, so we're glad that that exists. And really, I mean, we all came out ahead. I think it was inevitable that, you know, even if Mustaine were like an angel and didn't have a drinking problem and wasn't belligerent, he eventually would have left Metallica because he had his own strong artistic vision. And instead of having one world-class metal band, we now have two world-class metal bands. So I feel like as headbangers out there, we all came out ahead because these guys couldn't get along. Oh, totally. This is one of the greatest examples of you can enjoy both in rock. You get two awesome thrash metal bands for the price of one. And that's something that should be celebrated. Now, I just feel, Jordan, that, uh, you know, now that we're at the, at the end of another episode, that when it comes to uh, talking about rivalries, nothing else matters in my life. Or should I say, nothing else matters. Yeah. And with that excellent pun, we fade to black. Yes. So thank you for listening to this episode of Rivals. We'll be back with more beefs and feuds and long-simming resentments next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstack. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. 
Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.